So last week we uh, talked about, we formulated a, a definition of sorts of worship. We said worship, uh, and this is something that's going to be a little fluid probably as we go, as we go like, ah, we don't need that word in there, whatever. We want it to be simple. We said that it's uh, something to the effect, it's a conscious joyful and humble response of adoration and thanksgiving from all moral beings to the triune God on the terms that He prescribes or commands, ordains, and it is in the way that He alone makes possible. And that there's both a private and a corporate aspect to it. Um, And so what we want to do now is we began, after that, looking in the Old Testament, considering different different themes, uh, biblical themes that occur in the Scriptures that help us get a sense for how God uh, has revealed, book by book, chapter by chapter, progressively through the Bible, how He's revealed uh, this concept of worship to us. Um, and I think I said it last week, but uh, just to be safe, this is by no means an exhaustive study of it. Um, it's more of a... Uh, um, I'm not going to get that button. It is... Uh, it's not exhaustive or comprehensive. Um, it's just trying to... Is we're getting our feet wet, looking at some different things to say, okay, so this is the general way that these things are being described. And so uh, we can go from here with a fuller understanding uh, of worship than when we began. At least I, I certainly expect and hope that I will. And if I'm worth the hill of beans doing this, then we all will, I guess. So we first looked at what? Worship and anybody remember? It was worship and the first concept we talked about. It's really the only one we talked about. Starts with an R. Revelation. Not the book, but the the act of God revealing himself to us. And so we talked about ancient places in the world that uh, gods were thought to dwell in specific places, and so people would build altars and things like that in other pagan uh, religions. And with uh, the patriarchs, the uh, Abraham, we see God coming and establishing this relationship with Abraham and his descendants. I will be your God. You will be my people. And there were these responses of, uh, of worship and adoration that altars were built, sacrifices were made uh, in the times and places when God would visit his people. And secondly, we talked then about worship and redemption. So first, uh, worship is a response to God's initiation, His initiation and even revealing Himself uh, of beginning a relationship with people. And secondly, then, uh, redemption, that that relationship entails uh, redemption, at least post-fall, it does. And so we were in Exodus chapter 3, was where we... Ended. We were going to read 
7 through 18 of Exodus 3. Um, to consider this idea of uh, God delivering people out of Egypt, Egypt, redeeming them out of Egypt, ransoming them from bondage for service and worship. So, Exodus 3, 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of uh, that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He goes on and explains uh, some more in the following verses, but uh, we'll stop there. Um, reading that. He brings them out of Egypt for what purpose? To serve God on the mountain, he says. After Israel is redeemed from Egypt, Moses meets with God on the mountain where the Lord instructs him and he tells him to remind the people of God's gracious bringing them to himself. And so, that was in 3. We see the Deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt for the next several chapters. Uh, we get through 12, 13, 12, they leave. 13, there's consecration of the firstborn. 14, they cross the Red Sea. Uh, Moses uh, writes this song. Uh, he gives them bread from heaven, water from the rock. 16, 17, they begin formulating some kind of hierarchical system of governance and self-regulation. And then in 19, they come to Mount Sinai, where in verse, uh, verses 3 and 4, it says, uh, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall, you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did in the, to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. So he's reminding the people of Israel that they have been delivered and brought to God. God has initiated this relationship. And then in verses 5 and 6, he commands this total, uh, a, a, a total life pattern of service. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God has redeemed Israel as a possession for Himself. And there's this connection uh, that... uh, 
one of the, the authors that's been really helpful for me in this, um, David Peterson, he makes this connection between these terms that are used in verses 5 and 6. He says that the treasured possession, kingdom of priests, the holy nation imply a note of separation from the nations in order to be uniquely at God's disposal. So they are a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, separate from the world, set apart for God to be used uniquely at His disposal. Israel was redeemed to be an instrument by which God would show the world what it meant to live directly under His sovereign rule. Through their service to Him, God's character and His goodness would be put on display for the whole world to see. They failed pretty significantly in that task, but that was the aim. And so here in Exodus 19, we, uh, Israel is prepared by God for their encounter with Him. Right? Because Moses has gone up to the mountain to God and God has instructed him, um, but he's not speaking uh, to Israel yet. But it, when he comes and gives them the law, and they're like, "Oh, that's too much! It's too much!" But they're supposed to be—they're uh, supposed to be prepared for it. In this, God was coming to His people. The passage here, this is important, negates the idea that Israel was to experience a mysterious distant and irrational relationship with God. Right? This is not God of not the God of deism who exists out there, he's created the world and really has nothing to do with us anymore. We have nothing to do to him. We can't get to him. He can't or doesn't care to get to us. This is not that. <laughs> God has engaged in a personal, intimate relationship with His people. They were to enjoy Him as a person. They would have moral fellowship with the One who gives them the ten words in chapter 20. It's interesting that as God comes to them, this integral part to His coming is this giving of the law this description of what they should be because of who He is. And even in the Ten Commandments, how does it begin in in chapter 20, verse 2? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God initiates this relationship with His people and He says, I am your God. And I have redeemed you. The covenant in Exodus 24 is sealed with blood. The author said, the message is clear. Israel could draw near to God in His holiness only because of His gracious initiative and provision. God had not come to Israel, they would have been left, excuse me, left in Egypt Forever. But He comes and brings them out. 
by means of the Exodus event, God sets them apart from the nations and draws them to Himself, sealing that relationship with the blood of the covenant. And hereby He confirms Israel's status as sanctified as an entire nation. And so, worship and redemption, we are... And we'll look... We'll talk more about this when we get to the New Testament, but um, here we see that God redeems His people for worship, to be in relationship with Him. Right? That's, I think, an important aspect of what worship is as we, as we think of it. It's not distant. It's not uh, cloudy and foggy. And we don't know um, who this being is that we're worshiping, but it's personal, intimate. And so God has redeemed us and that is uh, central. It's a necessary component of our understanding of worship is that God has revealed Himself to us and He's redeemed us out of sin, right? Out of slavery of Egypt, the Israelites, and we can say we've been redeemed out of slavery to sin. So any questions, thoughts on that before we press on? So then, we have worship and revelation, worship and redemption, and now worship and the cult. Not worship and the occult, but worship and the cult. The word cult, don't get frightened, really just refers to an expression of religious experience in a corporate context with officially ordained and set forms. Uh, The Latin word cultus, I think, just means worship. And so... um, The term, you know, in modern vernacular comes, typically we've used it more in terms of, in reference to specific variant religious groups that have, uh, you know, broken off from essentially true Christianity and some kind of heretical teaching or whatever. But um, cult, the word cult in its most basic uh, kind of original form. Um, but if you don't like the word cult, then this is... Worship uh, and the, you know, cor- and corporate worship, right? This is the corporate gathering. This is the kind of official, recognized uh, ways of, of engaging with God as, as a people. So, uh, in Deuteronomy 12, if I can get there, in Deuteronomy 12, um, God, we, are, we see the contrast of the surrounding pagan nations and their many shrines, their many altars, their many places of worship. We see that contrasted with Israel who was to have one place of worship, one sanctuary. Twelve, one through 7. See that? For time, I wish we could read it, but um, we won't. Verse 4, he says, You shall not worship the Lord in that way. With all these shrines, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. So God establishes the place where His people were to worship Him. 
We see in 1 Kings uh, like 12 through 14, this, the prophets condemn Israel for their, uh, their failure to uphold this command. They make more golden calves and they start building these uh, Asherah poles and all of these things that they engage in looking like the, other, the nations around them. Um, they are not being distinct and separate. And so central to the, uh, the cultic life of Israel was the ark and the tabernacle, or later the temple. And in Exodus 25-31, through 31, God gives clear, concise instructions for how Israel, using finest materials, was to build the ark and erect the temple as His dwelling place with them. At the very heart of this covenant relationship that He's established with them, God gives assurance to His people that He would be their God. He would be their, uh, they would be His people. Genesis 17, 7-8, Exodus 6, 7. And this dwelling place of God with it were set strict guidelines for sacrifice and ritual purity and cleansing. And they were, these guidelines were the means of acknowledging God's kingship over them and the protocol that Israel was to follow in order to approach him in his holiness. Because God is holy and man has rebelled against God and his holiness, and so man's not fit to come to God. Habakkuk 1.13 says that. God is of purer eyes than to look at evil. Doesn't mean he is unaware of evil, he can't see it, right? Like the Jurassic Park T Rex, if you don't move, he can't see you. If you're wicked, God can't see you, kind of thing. It's that he cannot look favorably upon wickedness. He is holy. Just like, you know, when we think about our own judicial system and our judges. We want our judges to condemn evil. So God is like that. And so if we're evil, we can't come to God. But God has said, just wait. I will make the provision necessary for you to do so. And ultimately, we see that in Christ. But in the Old Covenant, looking forward to what Christ would do, there were temporary provisions put in place so that the people could come to God. Now, the ordinary Israelite was forbidden from entering the holy place. When the tabernacle is set up, you have uh, the outer court, you have the holy place, you have the most holy place. Um, and so, the, tip, the ordinary Israelite was forbidden from entering the holy place. The priest could be in the holy place, but only the high priest one day a year could go into the most holy place and he could die pretty easily if he went in uh, carelessly. And so they couldn't go to the holy place, but they could meet with God at the entrance of the curtain of the tabernacle. And in Exodus 29, we see... Uh, verses 42 through 46, God lays out the conditions that were to be met in order for this to take place. 
It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. It's this constant refrain over and over again in Scriptures that when it comes to worship, meeting with God, we recognize Him not just as God, but as our God. Right? That's Romans 1. That's the problem. Wicked men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't give thanks to God or honor Him as God. As their God. And so, there are provisions, this burnt offering, and we'll talk about sacrifices in a second, or in a moment. Um, provisions God set forth uh, for the means by which Israel could purify herself to come into God's presence. In the ancient world, now, fourthly, worship and the sacrificial system. So we've seen worship and revelation, worship and redemption, worship and uh, the cult, or the, um, you know, the, the place and the, the, the main ways in which Israel were to worship God. Uh, and so really coming out of that, we see what well, worship in the sacrificial system, because the sacrificial system was necessary for Israel to approach the Lord. In the ancient world, the word sac... How about this? What does, when we think of sacrifice now, what is that kind of ideas? Does that conjure up in your mind? Give up something, right? That you are giving up something that's valuable to you. Perhaps for something that you think is more valuable or... Uh, or not, but for some reason you're, you're letting go of something. And that's, I think that's a, uh, a, a fair way that we, we talk about it. But in the ancient world, the, the word sacrifice had a lot to do with setting something apart from common usage to the benefit of the gods. It wasn't merely a, this is something that I care about, so I'm going to let it go. But it's something that um, the Old Testament talks a lot about um, there's common and uncommon, there's clean and unclean, so everything was either common or uncommon. Right? Uncommon meant set apart for God. Um, then things that were common could be either clean or unclean. Um, meaning that, you know, so it's, if it's common and clean, then it's neutral-ish, you know. Um, if it's unclean, it's been defiled in some way. And so there's this idea that we set something apart, that it's no longer to be used for ordinary, everyday life for men, but specifically and, uh, for the benefit of the gods. And then, so in paganism, it was, you know, food was set apart for the gods so that they could eat and not go hungry. Which is kind of weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so the object of religion 
though, in paganism was to secure the favor and goodwill of the gods by carrying out the specific ritual duties that were commanded. And so these sacrifices right, were set apart either for the gods to benefit some way or probably to benefit in some way so that they will be pleased with me, that I will have their favor. And, and so, you know, it's interesting that this idea of, you know, sacrificing to, you know, off, you know doing something, making a sacrifice, law-keeping, whatever, to please the gods is not that distant from the truth. But what's the thing that all of that misses? Misses the truth. But what about it? Why is that, why is it so wrong? You know, yeah, Mark? Exactly, right? That's, that's the thing, is that the idea that, that the gods have to be appeased, the gods, isn't necessarily the thing that's that's not the misstep the misstep is to think that we can we could have done it ourselves and so um, God in establishing the sacrificial system sets up something that while there's a similarity there is a very quite stark contrast from what the surrounding nations would have thought when God establishes the sacrificial system it is not for them to ultimately on their own please him so that they'll be, they'll be happy with him. Uh, there were different kinds of sacrifices uh, in Israel. I um, wish we could look in depth at, at each of these, but uh, alas, we cannot. Um, there were burnt offerings. There were associated cereal offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. You can see that in like Leviticus 1 through 5. There's a, those things are laid out in those, those chapters. You can go and look at that. And the point to, to, of that, we'll say, is these offerings had the effect of atoning for the sins of those who offered them. Well, in Israel, right? We learn in Hebrews that the, the blood of Bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but there was an atoning effect that these sins, uh, that these offerings had, these sacrifices, these setting, these animals, these oils, these grains apart for God. They expressed complete dependence upon God as they were offering their first fruits, the best that they had, the first thing that came, trusting that more would come later. God would provide for them. And it restored peace and communion with God that had been broken by sin. We know that the wages of sin is death. And so, for uh, in Israel, these sacrifices spoke that truth very uh, clearly to the Israelites. You should be the one whose throat is slit at this moment. Right? They would bring, uh, bring a lamb and uh, would lay one hand on it right, and kill it with the other. To say, that should be me. Blood is necessary 
because death death is the result of sin. And so somebody has to die. In the Old Testament, they would commit these they would perform these sacrifices reminding themselves first I'm supposed to die. But it also did what? In uh, in the bigger picture of redemptive history. Points forward, right? So someone has to die. This is a lamb. This is not a person. This cannot possibly, in the end, make me right with God because I killed a bird or set apart some oil or killed a, the biggest, best cow that I've got. I need something else. I need that promised seed who will come and crush the head of the serpent. So these sacrifices were shadows of Him who was to come, who would be a perfect, spotless sacrifice, who would atone once and for all for the sins of His people. And our sins need to be atoned for because God can't look upon it. And if we're going to engage with God, if we're going to be His people and He's going to be our God, our sins must be dealt with. Now, was it the mere act, this slaughtering of these these animals, was it the mere act of doing that that was acceptable worship and sacrifice in the eyes of God. In Psalm 51, he says in verse 16, You will not delight in sacrifice, for I would give it, or be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That in Israel, simply coming to say, oh, here we go. I'm just doing it. The external activity of offering a sacrifice to God was not enough. Checklist, right? A broken and contrite heart was necessary. One that came realizing this should be me. So the mere performance, we see that even in the Old Testament, right? A lot of times we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, maybe not we, but kind of we hear a lot of talk in Christianity. The Old Testament, it's a bunch of external actions, you know, physical law keeping, you know, build a you know, a um, fence on the roof of your house and, uh, you know, just make sure you do that and, uh, and you're good. But we've seen Psalm 51 and, and many other places that it is one of personal, intimate relationship and commitment with God. The heart has to be involved. It's, it is so easy to just think that we can 
just set up our list of things to do and 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 that that is uh, that is true religion right I just have a checklist make sure I do these things be a good person and uh you know even, not even not even in the sense of justifying oneself before God. So you totally get, you know, I'm saved by the grace of God alone, but we, we can come here on Sunday morning, we can sit in our chairs, we can stand to sing, sit to sing, we can hear these word preached, we can hear these things, and just say, yes, good, good. Ah, oh, that's, that's excellent. Sweet. Check, 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 check. All right. Now what? It's 1230. I'm hungry. Let's go. Um, and we move on, right? I'm not saying that then, you know, every Sunday we come and it's just this emotional roller coaster, you know, of uh, we experience, you know, the heights and the depths and every, like, there's an, a normalcy to life. And even when we come in here to worship, we have to realize that we're finite human beings, that we have limitations, Right? That there are things pressing in on us. Um, but there should be something significant. We wake up Sunday morning and we are coming, not just privately, which is great and fantastic, at the breakfast table in the morning to read Scripture, to pray, to, to meet with God and do business with Him there for 20 or 30 minutes, two minutes, whatever, you know, once a month, whatever like we, we are actually able to do, you know, we try. Like, but we come every week, and we're gathered together with people who we say this a lot. Really, what in the world do we have to do with each other? Why on earth are we friends? Because of Christ, right? Some of us maybe you know we have similar interests or whatever, but a lot we're like there's a there's a diversity here people, but we come together with this body, and not just us, but we know that even though there are time differences and everything, that like, essentially we are gathering this day with the the church in the world. That there are people who are right now, who have already, right? The Hatfields in China are, they're closing out their day of worship. They have been, I have no idea what their day's been like, but I'm hoping and praying that it was a day of great rest and worship, that they, they could come and, and enjoy God and His people. And that's what we have to look forward to for the next ten, eight hours or whatever, ten hours. Or we go to sleep, twelve hours, I don't know. And so, worship is a great and grand privilege that God would, would, would draw near to us, that we could draw near to Him. Um, and so these sacrifices that we see point forward to Christ, and, and now the once and for all sacrifice has been made. The curtain has been torn. We can draw near to God any time of day, right? We don't have to go to the tent of meeting, the entrance of the tent of meeting to, to, to meet with God. We can do it in our car. We can do it wherever. But we here we have this opportunity to do it together. Uh, 
One, one last thing and then we'll conclude. Worship and the temple. So we talked about the tabernacle um, before a little bit with worship um, in, in uh, the call. talked about the tabernacle. So worship in the temple, um, basically, all, I just want to say this. Like the tabernacle, the temple was to represent God's rule over Israel and to be a reminder of His special presence with them, to bless them and to make them a blessing to the nations. And in that, there is a future hope for Israel. There is a, a future hope in, uh, in worship. The temple signified that, that there was hope for Israel as the building itself expressed the continuation of God's presence with them. Even when national sin would run rampant, prayer could be directed toward the place where God promised to bring restoration. 1 Kings 8, 46-51. Now we know that what happened to the temple? It was destroyed. Oops. But what's the temple now? I'm, probably, I'm getting way ahead of myself here when I talk about this stuff. But, right? We are... <laughs> The church, the temple of God. God is with us. He has taken up residence in your soul, in your heart. He is with you. And you can commune with Him. And so, to close, central to the Old Testament's understanding of worship is the fact that God, the God of heaven, took the initiative to make Himself known to the patriarchs, to the nation of Israel, whom He delivered out of Egypt in order to serve and worship Him. He enters into covenant relationship with them. They are to be His special people. He would rule over them for their good and for the good of the whole earth. God then prescribed the methods by which they could draw near to Him and live in His presence as His special chosen people, His possession. These ordinances functioned at least on two levels. First, they were the means by which Israel was to purify herself to come into presence with God. Second, they were the, the means for Israel to see that she could not do that. Truly. She was to see her utter inability to purify herself to live with God so that she should look to another who would come to cleanse her from her filth and sin once and for all. And so, next week, I want to look... So we've talked about general concepts, and so we want to hone in um, and talk about specific terms that are used in the Old Testament for worship. Um, and we're, they'll kind of, they'll, uh, they um, focus on, or they congregate, or come together around kind of three main ideas. The, the idea of honor, paying homage, of service and of respect. And so we'll, we'll talk about um, th those things and how that kind of looks 
in the Old Testament, and then that probably won't take the whole time. Um, we'll begin looking at the New Testament. Because we'll, we're really just looking at words in Scripture. We'll look at some things um, in, in the, the Septuagint. Well, we're not actually going to look at the Septuagint and all that, but we'll talk about some of that. And so some of the Greek terms used, some of the Hebrew terms, um, mainly to say um, the concepts as we understand them. It's not going to be as complicated as it probably sounds like it could be. So we'll look at that. Um, we'll, we'll dive into the, the New Testament for a couple of weeks, and then we'll try to begin, try, we'll bring some of these things to, um, together so that we can then begin center. Well, what, what have, you know, what has the church said about worship? How has it been understood in church history? What are the different, you know, ways that understandings have changed? Or has it been the same? Um, sort of a, a little bit more of a systematic and historical approach to it. And then uh, we will begin hon- honing in on the things that we do here at the church. So any closing thoughts, questions about all that? In Galatians, the law, the issue there is mostly about circumcision. But the idea was for the Judaizers that you had to become a cultural Jew, which would have included going to the temple and uh, sacrificing and everything. In 70 AD, when the temple's destroyed um, and never to have been rebuilt, um, those things ceased. But. Yeah, at the time there would have been uh, all, all of that going on. Um, question. And so, and, and that's, that's an interesting point, I think, to bring up with, if you have any conversations with um, someone who is uh, Jewish, who rejects Jesus as the Messiah, uh, why don't, you don't have a temple anymore, uh, what, what gives, what up with that, right? Um, how, Israel, that was central in the life of Israel. Now, you don't have one. Um, so you can't be doing all that. And I know, I'm sure they have some answers. I've never asked one that, but I never really had the opportunity. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, I, I, I'm sure that there is, but I am not uh, up to date on it. What, what the Jewish take on, on precisely that time period and how that, how that went down. It would be interesting, interesting reading, though, um, just to see how they kind of explain their way out of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's never happened since day one, but uh, normal wear and tear. I mean, this thing's old. <laughs> um. Because you see, the temple, you know, the temple has to be rebuilt. You know, it was rebuilt in, after it's destroyed in uh, 586 or 87. Um, that they're in exile, and that's a bad thing. Um, so, part of it, too, is that, you know, apparently they really can't rebuild it. But, anyways, um, I think those are, are good questions to the significance of the temple of those sorts of things in the life of Israel, and now uh, we see those things have been fulfilled in Christ. And so now we, we have access to God. You don't have to move somewhere to become 
a follower of Yahweh, you have to move to Jesus. <laughs> right? There's spiritual moving that takes place. So, Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word and for uh, your revelation to us about what you require of us. Um, pray that you would write these truths upon our hearts and help us now, God, as we as we come to gather for corporate worship, that we would do so with a, a fresh sense of what you have done for us. You have revealed yourself to us. You have redeemed us. You have established the means by which we can come to you and live with you as your people. You have provided the necessary sacrifice for sin. And because of that, we have a future hope that you will uh, bring us to be with yourself finally uh, forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.